0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Since the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, we've been following the science behind reproductive health. Sci-Fi producer Shoshana Bucksbaum, who's been focusing on reproductive health, joins me now to talk about a key option for healthy reproduction, contraception.
1: Hi, Shoshana. Hi, Ira. I've been thinking a lot about how often contraception fails, how difficult it can be to access, and what this all means now that tens of millions of women live in states where abortion is a crime. And in order to help piece this together, I've enlisted the reporting expertise of Sarah Varney, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. She's a longtime health reporter who focuses on reproductive health. Welcome, Sarah.
2: Thanks. Good to be here.
1: So since the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, some medical clinics have seen a spike in demand for more effective birth control. But you've been reporting on a very important fact. No contraceptive is 100% effective. That's
2: exactly right. And I wanted to gauge just how many unplanned pregnancies can occur because contraception doesn't work flawlessly. So my first call was to a physician and researcher who wrote the textbook on contraceptive failure rates.
3: Mitchell Crennan. I am a professor and director of the Complex Family Planning Fellowship at the University of California, Davis.
2: I put to Dr. Crennan an argument I've heard during my reporting on abortion. And we had this idea, I think, that contraception should never fail, that there shouldn't be a need for abortion, perhaps, because people can always prevent pregnancy.
3: When someone gets into their car, they don't go out and say, I think I'm going to get in a car accident today. The reason cars have seat belts and airbags is because stuff happens even when we try our best not to have it happen. Same thing with using contraception.
2: I asked Dr. Crenin to do some math with the failure rates of some of the most commonly used contraceptives. In his textbook, Krennin distinguishes between typical use and perfect use. That's when contraception is used without any error.
3: There is no such thing as perfect use. We are all real-life users.
2: And for real-life users in real-life circumstances, the failure rate for oral contraceptives is 7%. Here's the simple math.
3: There was one million women in the United States using a birth control pill, for example. At the end of one year, 70,000 unplanned pregnancies would occur. In people saying, I'm using a birth control pill to prevent pregnancy.
2: More than six and a half million women of childbearing age use oral contraceptive pills. That means the potential of about 460,000 unplanned pregnancies each year. And if that seems like a high number, wait until you hear about condoms the typical failure rate is double that of oral contraceptives, 13%.
3: Right, and that's still better than not using anything, but that would mean for a million couples using condoms, there would be 130,000 unplanned pregnancies within one year.
2: And even the most effective forms of birth control are no guarantee. The IUD, or hormonal intrauterine device, releases a hormone that thickens the mucus on the cervix, creating a barrier for sperm.
3: There are electron microscope studies that show the sperm just kind of hit this brick wall of mucus and can't get past it.
2: Copper IUDs work a bit differently. The high concentration of copper kills the sperm. Another highly effective method is an implant placed under the skin of the upper arm that slowly releases a hormone that prevents the ovaries from releasing an egg.
3: Hormonal IUDs have that typical use failure rate of about 0.1 to 0.4, and copper IUDs have a typical use failure rate of about 0.8.
2: Nearly 5 million women in the U.S. rely on IUDs and implants, which means that even for those using top-notch birth control, up to 19,000 will become pregnant within a year. At the Planned Parenthood in Little Rock, Arkansas, nurse practitioner Gordon Lowe has treated these shocked patients.
4: We have had women come through here for abortions who uh, had an IUD in, and they were the one in a thousand.
2: Abortion has been completely outlawed in Arkansas since the Supreme Court's ruling in late June. The only exception is when the death of a pregnant woman is imminent.
4: There is nothing that is a 100% effective short of never having sex. That is it.
1: All right, Sarah, you just walked us through some really sobering stats. But why can't scientists develop a contraceptive that works all the time, every time?
2: That was my question exactly. Exactly. I called up one of the world's leading researchers on contraception and asked her that question.
5: Well, first, I would say that in medicine, there is never any 100%. This is Regine Citric Ware. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, and I work at the Population Council in New York.
2: Dr. Citric Ware says an IUD might fail because the healthcare care provider didn't place the device properly
5: or... In other situations, you can have people who take specific drugs for other disease that would interfere with the molecule, the hormones that is in the system. And therefore, this
2: contraceptive is less active. And so there is a failure. For example, some HIV and tuberculosis medications and even the herbal supplement St. John's Wort can intervene in the processing of certain birth control pills. And then there's just daily life, which is hectic.
5: The perfect use is always very difficult. You may have delay in in taking your next pill or delay in inserting the next month of the
2: vaginal ring. And then there are factors like weight. Certain emergency contraception, including Plan B, may not work in people who weigh more than 165 pounds because the single dose of hormone is weight-dependent. Even vasectomies have a failure rate. Here's Dr. Crenin again.
3: A vasectomy is removing a small part of the tube that takes the sperm from the storage facility that's right above the testicle where all the sperm that is made is stored. And the body naturally wants to heal. That's right, if you get a cut on your finger and you just put a Band-Aid over it, the skin seals back up. So if you have a gap in a tube, the body naturally wants it to grow back together. And that's one of the ways in which it fails.
2: For now, vasectomies and condoms are the only birth control options for men. But Dr. Citric Ware is developing a new method, a gel that a man applies to his shoulders, where the skin is thinner and generally less hairy, that can temporarily block sperm production.
5: At this stage, we saw really good acceptability by the couple and uh, no pregnancy so far.
2: About 350 couples are in the transdermal gel study so far, and Dr. Citric Ware is on track to begin a large-scale trial next year. You've come much further in the development of a new male contraceptive than people have in decades. There's always been this promise of of a male contraceptive. Is the difficulty in developing male contraception more of a scientific problem, or is it more of a social or a cultural one? I think
5: we can see all of it. Scientifically, it takes more time to suppress the sperm production 90 days, then suppressing ovulation in women, which is every month. Also, it's a social situation where the male contraception is taken by the man, but if there is a failure, his female partner is at risk of pregnancy.
1: But this type of male contraception is still a long way away from hitting pharmacy shelves. And there have been so many fits and starts in this area of research. But there are other dynamics at play here, too. And Sarah, you looked into something that many straight women may be familiar with, but don't talk about publicly.
2: Yeah. You know, we talked about condom use earlier, and getting a partner to use a condom can require negotiation or persuasion. Those are skills that Jennifer Evans, an assistant teaching professor at Northeastern University, studies closely.
6: So, selfing or non-consensual condom removal is where one partner puts on a condom, but then removes the condom either before or during sexual intercourse without the other partner's knowledge or consent. When I spoke to Evans, I had just been interviewing
2: girls about teen pregnancy for another story. One of the teens described how a guy pretended to rip the condom wrapper open, but then apparently never used it. She became pregnant and now has a four-month-old baby.
6: A lot of these stealthing cases, women don't necessarily know that the condom has been used improperly. It means that they can't engage in any kind of preventative behaviors like taking a plan B or even going and getting an abortion in a timely manner. In any of your research, have you asked men what their motivation would be to even do this? Generally, what we find in the research and the literature, says that, you know, men usually engage in this behavior whenever they have a more severe history of sexual aggression towards women, or that men are doing it for the thrill of engaging in a behavior that they know is not okay. And a lot of them also report that they do it from a physical pleasure standpoint. The consequences were already severe before, but now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, I would argue that they're they're even more worse right now.
1: I mean, that's just sort of heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Contraception is really more complicated than I'd previously thought. And of course, unfortunately, no conversation about American healthcare would be complete without some nod to how many people struggle to get even the basic care that they need. So, how does that whole dynamic affect access to birth control?
2: There are 7.9 million women of reproductive age in the U.S. who are uninsured. So they have no coverage for birth control. The states that have banned or severely restricted abortion in general have far higher rates of people without health insurance. That includes Texas, where one in five people have no health coverage. Alina Selganikov is the director of women's health policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She has spent decades studying this issue.
1: We have a patchwork of uh, programs and services that provide contraceptive care in the United States. We have private insurance, we have Medicaid, we also have the federal Title X family planning program.
2: But Salganikoff says this patchwork has gaps. Not everyone has private insurance or Medicaid or lives near one of these federally funded clinics that provide free or low-cost birth control.
1: So there is definitely cases where this women fall through the gaps and lose coverage and have problems accessing and affording. Birth control. So, Sarah, we've covered a lot of ground here. How the numbers of unintended pregnancy adds up when birth control fails, a possible male contraceptive, and the difficulties of navigating sexual relationships. So, has the overturn of Roe v. Wade affected access to birth control?
2: We're starting to get some hints from around the country of of how the court's ruling might affect birth control. I spoke to several clinic directors in Arkansas, for example, who are no longer prescribing emergency contraception because they're not sure how the state's abortion ban will be enforced. And recently, the University of Idaho issued legal guidance to faculty and staff that they can no longer offer any birth control to students. Condoms can only be provided, quote, for the purposes of helping prevent the spread of STDs, but not for birth control.
1: This is something we'll be following closely. Thanks so much, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Shoshana. Sarah Varney is a senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News, and I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. If you want to dig deeper into the data on contraceptive failure rates and read more of Sarah's reporting, go to sciencefriday.com contraception. We have to take a break. And when we come back, biomedical pioneer
0: William Hazeltine on our COVID past and future. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. As we head towards our third winter with COVID, this may be a good time to reflect on the paths taken to deal with the pandemic, the development of the vaccines, the distribution, and what may lie ahead. Case in point, Pfizer announced last week that your vaccines may no longer be free next year. Retail price, about $130 per shot. So what does this all mean? Here to help explore the viral landscape is a scientist who has spent a lifetime researching and battling viruses and who frequently writes about where he sees viral research headed. Dr. William Hazeltine, chair and president of Access Health International, former professor of Harvard Med School and Harvard School of Public Health, founder of several biotechnology companies, including Human Genome Sciences. Dr. Hazeltine's writings appear regularly on Forbes Online. Welcome back to Science Friday.
4: Well, thank you. As you said, it's been 20 years, so I'm happy to be back.
0: (laughs) It certainly has. Lots have happened. Let's talk about some of this stuff. What is there about this disease that the public needs to know that you spend so much of your time writing about?
4: I think the first thing to know about what it is, and I think most people don't really have a good grasp of that, it's a virus, like the flu virus, is very well adapted to infecting an adult, healthy animal, and then reinfecting them shortly thereafter. And we know that because its natural habitat are bats. Now, something most people don't know about bats, they live a long time. They're about the size of a mouse or a rat, but they can live 20 to 30 years. And these viruses infect them every year, year in and year out, kind of like our colds. But what does that mean? It means the ecological niche for this virus is an adult, healthy person that infects again and again and again, even if it infected them before. And that means it's got lots of tools to do that. That's its niche. We happen to be the new target, the new ecosystem.
0: So we shouldn't be surprised then about how many times we can get infected.
4: No, just like the flu, it comes back and it changes. This is even more subtle than the flu. It's bigger. And Science Magazine had it right on the front of its cover, a beautiful issue a couple of weeks ago, calling it an immune saboteur. Not only does it change its code. But it's got, we're still counting, and I'm counting up to 35 to 40 different ways, it can jimmy our immune system. So once it gets in, it shuts down your ability to see it until it gets out. And then it doesn't care what happens to you. Some of its cousins kill 10% of us. Some of its cousins kill 30% of us. We're very lucky. This one only kills about 1% of us.
0: Earlier in the pandemic, there was an idea circulating that As the virus mutates, it tends to get less severe. Has has that been the case here? Uh,
4: You know, there's arguments about that. But let me just put an end to that myth. Think about tuberculosis. Think about malaria. Think about what smallpox did when it was rolling on. Did it get, after thousands of years, any less horrible? No. That is not the way pathogens go they don't generally get weaker. So that's a myth. And it's, I think, a dangerous myth. Uh, What's the case for this? It's very hard to tell because the population has changed. There's tremendous experience of the population now with this, and there is some partial protection. There's one other thing I think people should know. Right now, we're in an era of complacency. I live amongst other places in New York City, and the city is as there's no virus around there is virus around but the important thing to know is the vaccine will protect you for about 2 to 3 months from infection it will protect you pretty well for 5 to 7 or 8 months from ending up in the hospital or dead but then all bets are off the idea that there's perpetual protection from the worst thing this virus can do to you is not right the latest data that's coming out says that protection from hospitalization, and even worse, ends, or actually wanes, it just wanes more slowly. And that's what you would expect for a virus like this. It's got all these tricks to come back and get you again and again. So the last thing I'd like to say that people should know is this thing's around to stay. Unless we learn how to put it to bed like we're learning for HIV to use drugs, as well as our immune system, to fight it. This thing knows everything about our immune systems. It knows how to fight it. We've got to find new drugs that it's never seen before and combinations of those. That's what's worked for HIV. That's what we have to do now. And we're doing a very poor job of that.
0: What do you mean we're doing a very poor job of that? Please tell us what you're talking about.
4: Well, you can count on your one hand the number of drugs we have, and those aren't really great drugs. As somebody who's worked on developing HIV drugs, both a the theory and the practice, we now have super drugs. We now have a drug that you can get injected once every two months, and you won't get infected, and you got the virus, HIV, it won't make you sick. We're on the brink of having a shot that'll do that every six months. We are so far away from that for this disease. For example, Paxlovid. Paxlovid doesn't stop you from getting infected. Paxlovid does have an impact on keeping you out of the hospital, but only about 50%. We'd like it to wipe out the virus completely. You know, I had COVID last May and I took Paxlovid for, and I re- mentioned Paxlovid because it's our best drug. I took Paxlovid for 10 days and it was virus positive for 15. So is that a good viral drug that's wiping out? No. Yes. It's an important drug to have, and I urge everybody who gets infected to take it, because it does reduce your chance of ending up in the hospital, but it's not the powerful drug that we want.
0: Why don't we have that powerful drug like we have with HIV?
4: Well, it's taken us 40 years to get where we are. I think we can do it in five or six years if we really put our mind to it. But, you know, developing drugs is a complicated business. (laughs) I've been at it for a long time. And the way, way I uh, like it, too, is like uh, saying, we are got to fix my Ferrari by throwing a wrench into the engine. Okay, It's a complicated machine. There is a small chance that we'll get better. There's a lot bigger chance that will mess something up that I don't know about yet. So drug development is is tough. And uh, you've really got to have a lot of knowledge. Now, there's one or two little pieces of the. SARS-CoV-2 virus that we know well enough to begin to do really rational drug design. One of them is how it puts a cap on, because it's completely differently from most other viruses and cells. But it gives us a great juicy target, and we know every atom involved in that process. And so we can start to make drugs. But we know very little. This thing has a giant replication machine. It's got many moving parts. You can probably mess it up every single, a lot of different ways. We only have one way to mess it up, which is screwing up, its uh, polymerase a little bit, not working as well as we'd like. And so we just need a lot more research on this. We have the tools now. Thank goodness. We have so much better tools than we had at the outset of HIV uh, that it's, it's just incomparable how much more we could do. In the time we can do it, but we've got to we, we've got to do it now.
0: Who's the we we're talking about here? Is it drug companies, the NIH? I mean, is there is there money? It's, I mean, it's really
4: it's really not the
0: drug companies yet. No, drug companies are able to take something that
4: academics have shown will work and then turn it into a drug. We need the companies, and actually, we need the companies to work work closely together. You know, what really worked for HIV? First of all, money. The United States was willing to spend 2 to $3 billion a year on HIV research. Second, a collaboration, a very tight collaboration between academia and business. In fact, I remember working with uh, Dr. Fauci to create a special series of grants in which the federal government would give an academic laboratory money, provided they had an industrial partner, which would develop their drug. That's the kind of programs that really work. We have a couple of those, but we need to expand them.
0: We don't even give money now for preparing our society for the next attack of a virus, right? You're getting
4: into a series of politics and other questions, but it is the case. And I've been working on health policy for a long time now, too, that there are great reports. The Commonwealth Fund just did a really important report uh, on the need for a powerful national public health service. We don't have it. It's all balkanized. And we and that is a Commonwealth Fund report. My friend Peggy Hamburg chaired it. She was former head of the FDA. It's a great report. It tells you what we should do. Will we do it? Same thing. The National Academy of Medicine did a wonderful report on how we have to integrate our healthcare services across the nation to help people who are underserved, and talk about the way we deliver healthcare now. Beautiful report. Tells us a clear idea of where to go it's now up to us as american citizens to make sure that our politicians do follow the directions we need them to follow but you know as well as i do that this country's in a difficult spot right now
0: yeah i, I you've written just moving on a bit that that new research published in science translational medicine suggests an mrna vaccine that targets both the sars-cov-2 spike protein as well as something called the nucleocapsid protein, may offer stronger and broader protection than current spike-only vaccines. This research opens the possibility that one vaccine may protect against current and future variants. I'm asking, is it possible to create a universal COVID vaccine?
4: Well, you know, that's. uh, thank you for asking, Ira. Uh, That's a topic I'm really very close to my heart, and I do think it's possible. Let me just tell you what I was working on just before uh, we started talking. There's a great paper, a wonderful uh, group, Dr. Sapphire in uh, La Jolla, has done some very beautiful work on developing antibodies, cocktails of antibodies, that neutralize two really important viruses. One everybody knows about, Ebola, and she's developed drugs that will probably work against this new Sudan strain. Very exciting. She just recently published one on another nasty critter out there called Lassa. And she's got a cocktail of three antibodies that you know exactly atom to atom, which ones it touches, and can lock the thing up and and probably stop that too. So I think we can do this. There are cocktails now of monoclonal antibodies that are very broadly neutralizing. They neutralize not only SARS-CoV-2, but SARS-1 and MERS and some of these. Crazy bat viruses, you can do this. Now, they're also beginning to use that knowledge to design vaccines. Is it possible to design vaccines? Well, let me talk a little bit about some of the mRNA vaccines. We're really excited that RNA can now be used directly as a vaccine because it's really simple to make, totally chemical process, and it's really fast and flexible. But the way it's currently being used, with these modified nucleotides, you stick it in, the RNA lasts a couple of, couple of days. The protein's there for no more than two, three days. And then your immune system can't see it anymore. There's now something called self-amplifying messenger RNA. Really exciting. You put a little bit of the RNA, and it makes a lot of the RNA. You don't put it in the muscle. You put it in the layer of the skin where most of your immune system can see it. And that is giving very, very good results. The antibodies last for up to a month. Your body gets to see it, and you can add lots of different proteins very, very easily, including what you mentioned, the nucleocapsid. And when you do that, you get some broad reactions that can react all the way across most of the SARS variants. In fact, all of them that I know about, the MERS, as well as uh, SARS one. So, I think there's some good things coming both with the vaccines and with monoclonal antibody cocktails, and hopefully, eventually small molecule of drugs. It's not impossible to put this thing behind us. It's just hard.
0: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you just joined us, we're talking with Dr. William Hazeltine about the future of the COVID pandemic and lessons learned. You've worked with many different viruses as we're talking about, and many people, as you say, know of your work with HIV. And I'm wondering what you can tell us, what we can learn from those other viruses about living with COVID.
4: Well, we live with flu. And we've lived with flu all our lives. I've been in bed for five, ten days, five times from the flu. I've lived with flu. I haven't liked it. But I've lived with it. I get my flu shots, and most years they work, and some years they don't. But the difference between this and flu is this is a worse virus. It's much more lethal. It's already killing, on average, every year a lot more people than the flu does. It's not seasonal. It doesn't come along only in the winter. It comes along fall, spring, summer, and winter. So it's not seasonal like flu, uh, which makes it nastier. And it affects many more organs. So yeah, we can live with it. But right now, we're living at sort of a, a low, and the average is about five, 600 people a day are dying. What would we do if an airplane fell out of the sky and killed five, 600 people every day? We wouldn't like it, right? But that's what's actually happening right now. And it's not seasonal. It's been pretty constant from meat. And so, yeah, we can live with it. Hopefully, it won't get worse. You know, the real nightmare for somebody like me who thinks about what these viruses can do is I know that with some very subtle change, this could move from killing 1% of us to 20% to 30% or more. We don't know. That's not going to happen. So the reason you hear people like me say, we've really got to control this as much as possible, is to reduce that possibility. The more viruses that are out there in humans, the more they get into our animal environment, the more likely it is that something worse will happen. Not better, worse. And I can give you enough examples to curl your hair about how viruses get worse. One of the questions you asked me at the very beginning. We know how it happens. We know it can happen. And we're just praying it won't happen now. I would say something else to think about and why we really have to pay attention to this. This is happening to us, not because we're moving into new ecosystems, but because we are a new ecosystem. When I was born, there might have been 2 billion people in the world. There are 8 billion today. That's a lot more people. There are 5 billion single airplane flights, people taking flights, a year. We move around a lot. Think of us as bats congregated together in a cave. When you're on one of those cramped airplanes, that's like being in a bat cave. And these viruses are taking advantage of a brand new ecosystem. We're great food for viruses, and we've got to be able to protect ourselves.
0: Dr. Hazeltine, you've given us a lot to think about. Both scary and hopeful.
4: <laughs> you know, in the end, I have more hope. And I'm and the reason I do what I do is I think that there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of great people out there that I work with. And uh, we have really great scientists and great people working on this.
0: So would it be fair to say you're more hopeful than fearful?
4: Yes. Cautiously optimistic that we can do better.
0: Thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. William Hazeltine, chair and president of Access Health International. We're going to take a break. When we come back, how animals evolve in the age of human change. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. When you think of evolution, you might imagine a slow process that takes millions of years, right? I mean, it took 375 million years from the first fish climbing out of the water to get to the humans you see now. And now that we're around, we're changing the world at an unprecedented rate. Threats like climate change, deforestation, and pollution are wiping out entire animal species in just one generation. So scientists are wondering, can evolution act fast enough to keep up, or are some species just doomed for extinction? Here to discuss is Dr. Shane Campbell-Stayton. Assistant Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. Dr. Staten wants to figure out how humans drive evolutionary change. He studied all sorts of critters, from lizards to elephants. Welcome back to Science Friday. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being back. Nice to have you. Let's start with the basics, shall we? What are some of the big questions you are trying to answer? So the major questions
7: that my group is trying to answer have to do with how humans act as engines for evolutionary change in other species across the tree of life. So we are changing the planet in a lot of different ways, everything from pollution to hunting and fishing to climate change, global warming, all these different ways that are both intentional and unintentional. And in doing so, we are putting all of these pressures on the other organisms that share space and time with us. And we want to know not just how they're being affected now in terms of population declines, but how they will continue to be affected through the process of evolutionary response to all these different things that we're doing uh, into the future.
0: I note that to get at these questions, you've looked at a type of lizard, is that right? What did the lizard tell you about evolution? Yeah, so
7: we've been studying a small lizard called the Crested Anole, which occurs across the island of Puerto Rico. And we've been studying how these lizards have adapted to cities across the island. So it's a very abundant lizard that occurs in multiple cities across the island where it's colonized from the surrounding forests. So myself and my collaborator, Kristen Winchell, have been really interested in how these urban environments are acting as selection pressures for these very small, thermally sensitive animals. So one of the things about cities is that they are very hot. You know, because of all the concrete and metal, a lot of reflective surfaces. Yeah, they call them heat islands, right? Exactly. Right. This is what we call the urban heat island effect. And we've been studying how thermal tolerance, how heat tolerance in the knolls that occur in cities has changed from their forest counterparts. And we've shown that again and again, every time these lizards colonize cities, that They become more heat tolerant. And this effect seems to have a very significant genetic component, suggesting that it is evolution by natural selection that's
0: driving this change. So the lizards have evolved over generations, you're saying, to better tolerate the heat? Exactly. Huh. And so what about when it gets cold? Do they die out quicker?
7: So there doesn't seem to be uh, a trade-off uh, in terms of cold tolerance. So urban anoles and forester anoles are just as cold tolerant. So they've been able to increase their heat tolerance without sort of sacrificing their ability to perform at the other end of the temperature spectrum.
0: So are these lizards then an example of
7: rapid evolution? Yes, Absolutely. So we're talking about the oldest cities in Puerto Rico, say like old San Juan, uh, maybe a couple of hundred years old, but a lot of these cities are even younger. So, you know, we're talking about a hundred or less generations. You know, this urban heat island effect is a much more recent urban effect, which means that they've had to evolve even more rapidly.
0: You know, I find this is amazing because when I learned about evolution as a student, I remember the teacher drilling into our heads that evolution takes place over many, many, many generations. But you're saying it can happen fast. Yes. How do you you know that it's evolution that's happening? So we know that it's evolution because we can actually look
7: at the signatures of selection at the genetic level. We can actually read the story of a population in its DNA. And over and over again, we see that that story is a story of evolutionary response by way of of natural selection. So it leads distinctive footprints at the genomic level uh, that we can identify and pick up on.
0: So they pass these traits down. Exactly. Yeah. I understand that you're also showing how elephants are evolving in response to poaching. Sort of the same thing. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So when we're talking about rapid response,
7: things like lizards are better equipped to deal with those sorts of pressures, right? Because they have short generation times, they have really large population sizes, they're able to respond to selection pressures more quickly than uh, larger, more long-lived organisms just because it takes them longer to reproduce. They have smaller population sizes. All of that is working against them. But we see that even... In species like elephants, we can look at the effects of human-mediated selection and evolution. So in this case, with African elephants, almost all African elephants have tusks. So all males have tusks. The vast majority of females also have tusks. But there's a small proportion of females that are naturally born without their tusks, and they never grow them. But in regions where there has been intense hunting for ivory, we've seen an increase in the frequency of tuskless females in those populations. Uh, So in Gorongosa National Park during the Mozambican Civil War, which happened between the late 70s and early 90s, there was large scale hunting of all of the large mammals and the elephants specifically were being hunted for their ivory. Before the Mozambican civil war, about 18% of the females in the park were tuskless, which is already a, a pretty high number versus what we see in other parts of the range, then after the war, half of the surviving females were tuskless. This seems to be again, due to a selection response. If you're living in an environment where individuals are being disproportionately killed because they have tusks. Not having those tusks gives you a selective advantage. You're more likely to survive, reproduce, and then pass on those genes for tusklessness to the next generation. The oldest elephants in the park, those are the elephants that actually lived through the civil war, like they're still around. And then amongst their offspring, we still see an increase in the frequency of tusklessness. Amongst their daughters, about 33% of their daughters are still tuskless, which is still significantly higher than what we saw before the war. Even
0: though those offspring themselves, they never experienced the war at all. And that didn't take very long. You're talking about a 15-year Mozambique civil war. Did it happen in one generation?
7: Yes, exactly. It happened in a single generation. So, you know, when we talk about evolution, most people know evolution by natural selection, right, but natural selection plays out within a generation, right, it can happen almost instantaneously, as long as there's some event that disproportionately favors some individuals over others, then that selection can play out in the course of days or months In extreme cases, maybe even hours, but it's not until those survivors have offspring until they pass those genes on to the next generation that you actually get evolutionary response to selection, right? And that is evolution by way of natural selection.
0: Would that mean that for you to see this change or for the elephants to really exhibit this tusklessness, that there would have to be many, many elephants killed who had the tusks for the other ones to survive?
7: Yes. So in a lot of these stories, we, I think we have a tendency to see them as success stories and and they are in a way in terms of like the resilience of life, but selection always comes at a cost and that cost is death. So the stronger a selection pressure is, the more individuals have to die in order to get a response to that selection pressure.
0: Yeah, I get it. And just to be clear, these species are not evolving because they're developing new adaptations, like Lamarck would say, right? Natural selection is happening.
7: Yes, this is natural selection. So it's selection on standing genetic variation. When most people think about evolution, you think about like a novel mutation popping up in a single individual and then sort of being slowly spread, which does happen, but it takes a very long time. The examples that we're talking about Like, you already have variation that exists in populations or in species that then become adaptive under specific circumstances and then drive those traits and their genetic underpinnings to higher frequencies in a population. And that occurs
0: much faster. So evolution is like having a toolkit. Exactly. And if you have a full toolkit, you get better results. Yeah, so
7: genetic diversity is essentially the toolkit that any species has to respond to any type of pressure that it would possibly encounter. So the more genetically diverse you are, the more potential tools you have to respond to any given challenge. The thing about natural selection and evolution is it's not a forward-looking process, right? It's not trying to predict anything. It's not planning on anything. It's a responsive process, right? So something happens and then you get an evolutionary response. So the more tools you have in your toolkit to deal with whatever may come, the more adaptable a species or a population is. But again, once you go through a large selection event, because that, that selection requires death, it also requires a loss of genetic diversity. So in the case of the lizards in Puerto Rico, like they may be very heat tolerant, the survivors in cities, but what happens if an extreme cold snap comes through? Well, the genetic diversity that may be needed for the physiological traits that would be able to survive that type of event may be very different than the traits that have been selected for in the past, but you've also lost a lot of the population and a lot of that genetic diversity may then be gone, right? So selection
0: always comes at a cost. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Shane Campbell-Staten about how climate change is driving animal evolution. I guess You were talking about some of these elephants being really, really old. And I'm thinking, you know, if I'm one of these older elephants, I must have been around to watch this massive die off of the other elephants who who uh, couldn't survive.
7: Yes. Yes. So it's one of the things that I learned very quickly when I undertook this project. So when I started the elephant project, I'd never worked on elephants before. I'd never been to continental Africa before, you know, which is a big deal for me as, you know, as an African American. So everything was brand new. And seeing an elephant up close and personal, a sedated elephant right in front of me, it was a completely different experience than anything I'd ever experienced before because I'm looking at this adult female who's, you know, she's in her 40s or 50s. She actually lived through the Mozambican Civil War and survived while literally nine out of ten of the individuals in her species died during this 15year period, and she survived and then went on to have children and grandchildren became the matriarch of a herd, and now she's still living her life. That sort of a individualistic story, right I mean that is it's such an intense it it's such an intense point of connection that i think we can have when it comes to the organisms that are responding to all the different things that we're that we're doing but those individual success stories they're always marred in some sort of a tragedy and ultimately we happen to be the cause of of a lot of those tragedies in the anthropocene in the age of humans
0: mm. I imagine, and and from talking with you, I can see that you have been through and watched a lot that has been going on in the Anthropocene. Has your research changed your perspective on what biodiversity might look like in the world we leave behind? It has. I think it's really driven for me
7: the idea, this sort of conundrum that is life, right? So life is both incredibly resilient and incredibly fragile at the same time and simultaneously. You know, I spend my life studying all these examples of the strange, incredible, amazing, weird ways that organisms have figured out how to respond to all of the things that we're doing. And it makes me hopeful and it makes me proud to some extent to be a part of this story that is life, but ultimately I feel like a lot of these organisms, if things don't change as much as they're doing, they may be fighting a losing battle because we're just changing the planet so quickly in so many different ways simultaneously that even the most diverse toolkit, I have no idea how a species would be able to survive all of the different things that we're throwing at the planet all at once. So will life survive the Anthropocene? Absolutely. I have almost no doubt in that. I mean, it survived five major extinction events in the past, and I think it will survive us. But what that biodiversity looks like that comes out on the other side, it may be very different than the diversity that we know now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is the state of affairs, isn't it, Dr. Campbell-Staten? Exactly. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Shane Campbell Staton is an assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University. One last thing Did you know that Sci hosts events both in person and online? If you want to pop open a cold one made with science, or go stargazing, or hear about tech that could help us better understand animals, we have an event for you. Here's how to find out. Sign up for our events newsletter on our website, sciencefriday.com slash events. That's sciencefriday.com slash events. And a big welcome this week to listeners joining us on WKSU in Ohio. Welcome to the sci family. Here's Emma Gomez with some of the folks who helped make this show happen.
2: Thanks, Ira. Our radio producers are Christy Taylor, Kathleen Davis, Shoshana Buxbaum, and Rasha Aridi. Diana Montano is our Experiences Manager. Melissa Mayers is our Office Manager. Ariel Zitch is our Director of Audience. And I'm digital producer Emma Gomez. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you, Emma. B.J. Litterman composed our theme music. And of course, if you missed any part of the program, or you'd like to hear it again. Subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.